Hello, I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom with our host, the Reverend Joseph Hinchy and Lisa Fertini Campbell. Now here's Lisa. Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Welcome everyone to Duke and Altum. I'm Lisa Fortini Campbell with the Reverend Joseph Henshi of the Congregation of the Sacred Stigmata, continuing on our journey out into the deep. So, good morning once again, Father. Good morning, Lisa, and this is indeed a day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Alleluia. Mm. Rejoice as we always do. Mm. So now what you're going to do is continue on with which will likely be your last reflection on the great mystery of the Transfiguration. And in our last episode, you spent a good time, a bit of time, talking about uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians and drawing comparisons and contrastings with um, the role of Moses in Exodus 34. So we looked at a lot of the language Paul uses, and you linked it back to things that were going on in the Old Testament, making all of this one whole cloth of revelation about the mystery of Christ. What, of course, drew me to this was the Paul's idea of removing the veil, which is revelation. In other words, revelation has moved on. So the old veil in which Moses was the center figure has been <clears throat> surpassed by the later coming of Jesus Christ. And while both covenants, the one which Moses ministered to, involved writing, ministry, and splendor, or so did in Paul's, but the writing is different. The writing for Moses was on stone slabs, chipped into the slabs. The ministry was he was a servant of that message for God. And the splendor was there was some glory and there was fire and smoke and the voice came out of the storm and the wind and the rain. Well, all of these things have been greatly surpassed in the exegetical method of, of Paul. Another thing, like an old philosopher, he takes his argumentation from what is lesser to what is greater. greater. Now, Moses was was wonderful. But Paul was greater because of Jesus Christ. and he, he's a min, Paul is a minister of Jesus Christ. And then he reminds us of that strange school of interpretation of the desert monks of Qumran called Pesher. And that is that they thought, this little community in the, in the desert, they thought that all of this was meant just for them. There was no one outside, it was just for them. And that is called Pesha or Pesherim, meaning these texts interpreted in a very limited way. So in a certain sense, Paul does take many of the old texts and applies it to his own situation. This would not seem to be far, as we've seen from Kierkegaard's contemporaneity, which is not only updating, but is to make Christ real in this time, here and now, like it's to reveal the face of the Father and not to conceal it by our own conduct. So I couldn't have made a more fortuitous choice, even though it was accidental. Here we see a biblical genius at work Mm -hmm. with an extraordinary background. And what Paul is trying to get us all to do, life in the Spirit means 
turn toward the Lord forever. Well, and as you explained to us last time, too, what Paul is doing is what you uh, labeled a midrash, mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. this great rabbinical mm-hmm. tradition, mm-hmm. which it, which draws from the scripture and applies it mm-hmm. to our life and mm-hmm. makes it more understandable, mm-hmm. more relevant, mm-hmm. more actionable. Mm-hmm. We can do things yeah. about it, and that's a... That's a valuable service that Paul provided. Absolutely. And it's a standard or an example or a, or a witness of what we poor preachers try to do, read the gospel and make a comment on them that is not just exegesis, but hopefully also not only informative, but also inspirational. I understand. Well, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mary, seed of wisdom. Pray for us. And Saint Peter, please pray for us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 All right, Father, I'll let you start wherever you like today. Oh, Lisa, in these conferences, when I pray to the seat of wisdom, <laughs> I really need help, because this is an extraordinary, extraordinarily rich passage and theme of sacred scripture. It, this is biblical reflection for me at one of its heights. This is truly a genius at work. So when Paul contrasts uh, the old and the new, he sometimes overstates it. Now, we used to do that ourselves. Let's say you wanted to make a pitch for vocations to the priesthood by telling young men how difficult family life was. (laughs) Wait a minute. Family life is sacramental. It's a way of holiness and so on. So sometimes you can get a bit carried away. Now, I'm not saying that Paul did, but he refers to Moses as being involved in a ministry of death. Yeah. Because he said it was just meant for a while. This was not the final. This was the initial, this initial written covenant. And then he overstates the letter killing. Well, not every letter kills. If somebody (laughs) writes to us in great affection and great interest and so on. So, it seems to be a little bit of overkill or maybe a, a, a kind of a real strong emphasis in what he's trying to do. But we got to remember, Paul was under divine inspiration, so he had certain privileges we don't have, but just trying to discern them. Well, and sometimes too, I think, when, when people feel a real urgency to say something important to wake people up, mm. they use overdramatic language mm. or exaggerate uh, things too in as much for the, I, I don't want to say shock value, but there's a, a wake-up call that Paul's giving us. You said it exactly right. It is the shock value. Like in the early days of Vatican II, I'm a little ashamed to say this, but I knew a priest who once got in the pulpit with his rosary and tore the rosary apart and threw it into the crowd. So these days are over. Oh my. New times have come. Uh, most of us of my vintage would remember that course we had in Sacred Eloquence where our teacher was trying to say, we've got to say something important at the beginning. And he told the story of how since St. Ignatius is celebrated on July 31st 
and St. Dominic, August 8th, they would swap pulpits. In other words, a Jesuit would come for the Feast of St. Dominic, and they sent an old Dominican to the Jesuits for the Feast of St. Ignatius. So his opening line, after ascending into this very high pulpit with his black black and white robes flowing, to hell with the Jesuits. And there was a gasp in the whole place. Oh, I'm sure. Then silence. To hell with the Jesuits. That's what the enemies of the church are saying. Oh, my. (laughs) Well, it got everybody's attention. Well, of course, we all laughed. But anyway, they can be overkill. So I don't know if this is the case here. We'd have to say no, I'm sure. But there are contrasts. Instead of, as we've seen so many times, written on stones, as in in, uh, Exodus, Jeremiah already saw that it was written on the heart. And Paul adds to this, by the Spirit. So we've got a tremendous progression. This is not just meant for the Bedouin Israelites. This is meant for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, every man, woman, and child. Jesus Christ, in some way, is united to every person. Yet, Paul does speak of the deathly character of the Old Testament, of which Moses was the minister, whereas Paul's is a spiritual covenant, new represented by his ministry. His is written on the heart, the other was written on stones. And the glory is different. The glory, Moses was in a blaze of glory up there. He was enveloped in this glory. Paul wasn't. The only light Paul saw when he was knocked off the horse. But Jesus was. And that's the image he presents to us, the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration, in the hopes that we will remove whatever veil is keeping us for making that generous, ultimate, total leap of faith. So Paul is glorified in a superior manner. He's, he's the minister of the Son of God. So these, the superiority theme is drawn from the pool of covenant characteristics, a new covenant on mercy and all of these things. It's one upsmanship. Moses was, minute, was his servant, I'm the Lord's liturgos, celebrant of these mysteries, and so on. So, <clears throat> Second Corinthians uh, contrasts the inferior first covenant to the superior definitive covenant. The first covenant eventually led to condemnation. People rejected it, whereas the new covenant leads to justification. So the negative traits of the inferior old covenant and the ministry, its ministry must be inferred in opposition to its replacement. So we, it's easy to trace the positive traits of which Paul is speaking here, the fact that it's written in every human heart. First of all, it's a ministry of justification. Righteousness is a terribly complicated concept in both Testaments. It is technically a right and pleasing relationship to God. However, that relationship is established or retained. In the case of Israel, that right relationship was established and maintained through the covenant. That was God's choice. The word does not appear in the prophetic text except in Jeremiah and the covenant conceptual pool. But these ideas of forgiveness of sin, covenant relationships and all, and the idea of all 
are a synthesis of many, many texts woven together into this extraordinary tapestry by St. Paul. To me, it looks like a kind of a prevision or a preview of the main beatific vision of what we'll see in heaven when all of this is made clear to us. So the New Covenant emphasizes especially forgiveness, mercy, and then righteousness, but more, not our righteousness, but much more God's forgiveness and God's mercy. So the uh, Old Covenant, by contrast, was a kind of a of an Old Covenant or the First Covenant. There was some glory in it, but Paul's ministry of the New Covenant brings righteousness, restores Israel's right relationships with God, and the New Covenant will abound in glory, the glory of the mercy of God. So Paul goes on. He, he knows he's on to something, so he goes on. If there was any splendor previously, well, there's a greater splendor now. Mm-hmm. The ministry of the new covenant abounds in glory, not because of Paul, but because of the transfigured presentation that he offers us of Jesus. In order to remove this, to see this, we need to remove the veil, which may be a mediocre way of life, or not being fully committed, or being always unkind about others, or giving in to self-pity, and not real sorrow for sin, which is always permeated with hope. So this how much more, we find that again in Romans 7. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Well, we can apply that principle, uh, superabounds with Christ. We can apply that with whatever glory Moses had, whatever good he did, is now surpassed by this great gift of, uh, of God uh, through Jesus and Paul as his minister. So the idea is the idea that in the Old Testament times, Moses himself was, quote-unquote, transfigured. Mm-hmm. It was a grace that came to Moses. Mm-hmm. And then because of that, he was able to mm-hmm. teach the Israelites mm-hmm. in the best way that he could. Mm-hmm. But it was given to him. That's right. In the New Testament, Christ is transfigured, which means we all have the opportunity right. to be That's transfigured. It's That's not right. about... It's about us through him. That's right. So we can see immediately it's, it's total superiority. It's completely superior to what, what had been. So the former splendor, the earlier ministry, all of these ended. They faded. The glory of Moses faded. Christ came. You have a greater than Moses here, a greater than Abraham here, a greater than Elijah here, a greater than Solomon here. We they had this often in our understanding of the New Testament. So the glory of Moses was transient. The glory of the transfiguration is eternal. Right. It's a glimpse of this eternal. The light of day is the transfigured Lord. We see in the Apocalypse that in the heavenly sanctuary there's no need of lamps. The light of the world is the high priest of mercy celebrating eternal thanksgiving for the mercy of the Father. So Moses' face and his shining and all of that now are a distant memory. But Christ's transfiguration remains a future hope. This is what we're in for if we can only hang on and be uh, carry out our Christian duties. We don't have to do extraordinary things, but do what we do better. Mm-hmm. To try to be better at what we are in our vocations. So... <clears throat> 
Paul, more than anyone else, has landed on this phenomenon <laughs> involving Moses through the advent of the superior covenant in Jesus Christ and the superior ministry deriving from his, we think, holy orders is simply a share in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. There's one priesthood and there's two aspects of sharing in it, holy orders and the priesthood of the baptized, make of your body an oblation to the mercy of God. Though needless to say, as we perhaps have already said too much, Paul contrasts the earlier glory, the earlier covenant, the earlier writing, the earlier message, and on and on. Every aspect of that covenant has been surpassed. The glory is no longer transient and passing. The vision is, because this is what we are tending toward, so that one day it might be eternal uh, for us. So some scholars ponder a little bit on this famous Peshier, P-E-S-H-E-R, approach in Second Corinthians. This was an interpretation, this kind of biblical reading was clear in Qumran. Now they were a group of Essenes, maybe followers of John the Baptist, I don't know, but they were a small group and the Qumran, their library, an extraordinary library of early texts, was found only in 1947. Mm. There was a shepherd out in the woods or the, out in the desert and a storm broke out, and like Moses, he ran in to get some cover, and he walked into this bat cave. And he looked around, and he saw all these shells and all this stuff there. So it was an extraordinary, amazing, amazing. amazing. Then all of that stuff has since been printed. And of course, there are disagreements, and then there's some awful financial things, who gets the money. and Anyway, that's just the sad aspect of the human. It's like the Holy Land, some denominations have the shrines at one moment and then the next hour somewhere. Anyway, it's the weakness of humanity and God loves us despite all of that. So let's look at this Peshir approach. It's simply a bridge. Paul didn't always do this, but in this particular instance he did because he's trying very carefully to talk to a rich, well-educated, community of Corinth to be more interested in the poorer churches and to put away all their divisions and boasting of who baptized them and what church they're in and all this kind of stuff. So having this hope, we can be quite confident, not like Moses who put a veil over his face. (laughs) Well, Moses had to do that because of the splendor of God. So Paul turns it around a little bit here. So the lesser to the greater is what his, what Paul's ministry or what Paul's message is here. But the method that he does that is this old Pesher form of, of, of exegesis. So the veil that Moses puts on was to protect him so that he could do his work. But Paul says, we got to take it off because it's meaning to think that Moses, Moses is the veil. So we have to take that off, and God's veiling, while it's a reality of history, faithfully recorded in Exodus, but its full meaning, its full sense, is clear only in the light of Paul's later interpretation of it, which he uses metaphorically to say, we have to remove whatever is on our own eye that blocks our vision to this new covenant in in God's mercy. So Paul 
to do this is giving us hope. Mm -hmm. We can't go back to those desert days. The law is no longer written on stones. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared in the Babylonian captivity. We don't, right. that. we don't even have it. But what we do have is a covenant written on our hearts. And that'll go with us wherever we go. It'll always be, restless is my heart, O Lord, until it rests in you. That's the covenant. Then there's a, you're not done yet. Keep going and I'll, then you're called home. So Paul is a minister, has abiding hope for this glory because he's a minister of the risen Christ. He's a minister of the eternal covenant. So Paul's theological hope is both apostolic and I think we could say in parentheses also exegetical. I mean, sure. he, really, he really tore these texts apart in a positive sense. Now you and I as biblical students and devotees, we can't do this. But we can certainly admire the wisdom of God taking these old texts and giving them a brand new meaning. It's a new, fuller revelation. This is the fuller sense, a literal sense, but fuller than its earlier understanding. Well, and as you talk, it makes me think um, how much benefit this does all of us in the modern church, too. You could say that in some ways we are Corinth. We're wealthy as a society in general, mm -hmm. educated mm -hmm. as a society in general, sophisticated, and and it, it can lead to divisions, complacency, mm -hmm. picking at things that... Mm -hmm aren't important. And so Paul's reminder to take these veils off and get back to basics right. here. So it's a, not only just thing. to have a good show, it's to improve sure. union within the church. Sure. And it's true. Uh, they tell us, and I don't know how true it is, but the greatest Christian body of believers or former believers or whatever today in our country is ex-Catholics. Mm -hmm. So our job is to try to take these words of divine revelation and not invent new ones. Right. So it's not nova, said noviter. The new evangelization is, take this message. So Paul is a great model here of the new evangelization, and this is what we'd like to, uh, like to imitate if we can. So this is the, the epitome of the Mosaic ministry with the veil on his face. <laughs> but we're not like Moses who veiled his face. Take the veils off because of Paul's unique reading and interpretation of such veiling and the immediate effect it had on the old people of God. They then, like in Jeremiah, say, well, we have the, con we have the temple, so we're going to be saved. You're not going to be saved unless you become the temple, as Jesus tells us, or as John tells us in John 2, Jesus is the temple. So the purpose of the veil in Paul's view was so that the sons of Israel would not gaze upon the end which was coming. Paul is developing here the use of a rather vague, vague grammatical phrase in his earliest statement that Moses' glory was ending. Well, okay, that's true, but it's, uh, it was certainly not a ministry unto death in, in the sense that it had no place. It did have a place, temporary, but it, it provided the basis for the new law, which, of which not one I order will disappear. Well, and so, uh, the, again, the point that you're making I think is important because we always have this temptation of comparing and contrasting, and then when we find something great, then we set aside as worthless mm -hmm. what was old. Mm -hmm. But w what I'm thinking is that is that Moses' old co covenant passed away, 
like our adolescence passes away. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. like being a teenager was bad mm-hmm. or a child was mm-hmm. bad. We have just moved through it into okay. a greater idea. Exactly. So that that it, it's all part of one large mm-hmm. story. That's right. And not and not <clears throat> throwing yeah. it away, but yeah. but maturing it maybe. Would that be a good so way? That's a perfect example and that's really really what this is. We uh, we live still in embryo because the light of faith will blossom further under this vision of the transfiguration, its warmth and its insights and its revelation to make us share more more fully in the knowledge and serving of God when faith transforms into vision or when uh, when this uh, way of life forms is, is changed by the beatific light, the light, the perpetual light that gives us, that transforms faith into vision. So even though Paul's method here is somewhat obscure and vague and ambiguous, like he says, now we will, we must go ahead with unveiled faces. He's got a whole brand new meaning for veil. He's using it metaphorically, reflecting like mirrors the brightness of the Lord. And all of us grow brighter and brighter as we are turned into the icon that we reflect. Right. Uh, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole, it's a New Testament at its best. It's a new covenant, it's a new understanding of God, a new understanding of love and charity and so on. So by this glory of God, by just looking at it with a glance of faith, like we read in Revelations, they looked on the one whom they have pierced. Well, that looking brings about conversion. So in the my stigmatine world, that is what I think of as the ideal of stigmatine fervor to look on the one we have pierced, and by his wounds ours will be healed. So the old veil, <laughs> or any veil on anyone's face, can only be removed in Paul's mind by turning toward the Lord. And this Lord is spirit. So it's a tremendous leap in faith and an increase in divine revelation. So therefore the Old Testament Lord God is the New Testament risen Christ. For many scholars, this midrash on Exodus 34 is identifying the neoma, the spirit, with the Old Testament Lord. It's it's a divinity, an argument of divinity. Paul does extend his own interpretation to this time, and all of this seems to be in the style of the old Qumran Pesher, which extends interpretation to the reading in this, on one's own time. This is contemporaneity. I'm not sure that this is what Kierkegaard really meant, but it seems to me a, a, a good understanding of it and very helpful way in which to continue the ongoing conversion formation we need in our lives of faith. So how do we remove the, ma- the veil? As you know, as, a, as a, in the psychological lectures that you offer in encouraging people, we know that most often say, well, how do you do this? I mean, how how, how am I happier at my work? Uh, what formula would, would you use? Well, Paul says, turning toward the Lord. He uses another 
metaphor, walk after the Lord, put on the mind of Christ Jesus, imitate me, all of these expressions with which we are familiar. So Paul's message is not all that difficult uh, to grasp, but it's amazing in its boldness, in its brilliance, and in its clarifications. It really, really is an inspiring uh, reality here. So how do we turn toward the Lord? Well, I can just use the Old Testament like seeking the Lord. How do you seek the Lord? Well, <clears throat> if you're a historian, you reflect on it. Mm -hmm. Remember the good old days and tell your new generation about the Seder meal, what this means. Another way was the liturgy, to celebrate God's word. The prophets, they were looking forward to this new creation, this new world, this new desert that would come alive again. The wisdom teachers, what's the greatest prayer of all? Recollection, ponder, meditation, contemplation. So that's how you turn toward the Lord. Like with Peter, go back and be a good Pope. <clears throat> you and I, go back and be a good Christian. Keep trying very hard in whatever vocation you have found taking in hands, if possible, each day some aspect of divine revelation. So these are ways that we turn toward the Lord. Well, one of the things that's been very helpful to me is something you brought up in one of your earlier reflections. And I think it was St. Ignatius who said this, that um, God only knows what good he would do in us if we mm -hmm. didn't get in his way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm not saying it very, elegant, very well. elegantly. Mm -hmm. But so sometimes these veils are stumbling blocks in God's way. Why would we ever put a stumbling block in God's way? Mm -hmm. And if you realize your own veil as a stumbling block to his good done mm -hmm. in you, then you think, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Why am I obsessing over something that mm -hmm. happened to me mm -hmm. 20 years ago? Why am I obsessing over some hurt someone inflicted mm -hmm. on me last week? Why mm -hmm. am I obsessing over the bad childhood I have? Or whatever it is. That there's a that that if we recognize these veils as mm -hmm. stumbling blocks, mm -hmm. then then in some ways they're easier to get out of the way because we start to see our life as his mm -hmm. and not our life as ours. And this would already be a ray of the transfiguration to transfigure the present scene, our memories, our recollections, mm -hmm. good, bad, indifferent, present weaknesses and future fears. You let them all to be transformed by this vision, this vision that's passing on earth, but leading us to an eternal, eternal covenant. So all of this is modeled on John's prologue, perhaps, when we say, what does it mean that Jesus comes from the bosom of the Father? That's a nuptial idea of being born from the Father. But Father Raymond Brown tells us that word really means turning toward so we imitate Christ by constantly turning toward, like the sunflower or the mm -hmm. pond lilies, open up when the sun, when the sunlight hits them. Now, why was Israel so hard to convert? <laughs> because they had some of the message. Mm -hmm. In the first covenant, they had some of the message. So it's very difficult when you're half right. We speak of an intellectual conversion when you go from a lesser truth to a fuller one, or a further, further, further explicitated truth. It's once in a while interesting to look at the excessive pietism that some of these great people wrote. For example, St. Paul, in this letter of Second Corinthians, no, it's Romans 9, at Romans 9. 
This is what he says. What I want to say is this. My sorrow is so great. My mental anguish is so endless. I would willingly be condemned and cut off from Christ if this could help my brothers. Mm-hmm. That's called excessive pietism. Well, that's isn't Therese of Lisieux said the that's same thing. That's the next thing. Paul says this. The little flower said she'd be willing to go to hell right. to save one person. Moses said it. Blot me out. Francis de Sales says it. Mm-hmm. Something similar. So the meaning is very clear. The intention, rather. But sometimes the words... Uh, th- th- these would not be the ideal. Not the, but to love your neighbor even more than you love yourself, that is what we're, what these great saints do for us. Or it would be as a parent would say, when a child is sick, take my life, give him his. Well, mm-hmm. Martin Colby did the same. Maximilian sure. Colby did that. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, a grandeur about that expression, which I'm sure, like you say, can be very pietistic. Mm-hmm. But it's a... It yeah, is a, right. a flood of the heart. Well, what they're talking about, though, is to lose their soul eternally. Oh, I know, right, right. Whereas right, Jesus right. is going to love no one has and to give up his or her life for a friend. I understand. And Paul says an enemy. Mm-hmm. Jesus loved us while we were still enemies. So the Gospels and Acts paint a painful picture of the routine and harsh rejection of Paul by his own. This misunderstanding, this hostility of them because Paul was one of them and he was an expert. However, we can't push this too far because there are several texts from the prophet Isaiah which lead us to two New Testament texts that eventually lead us to Paul. For example, in Isaiah 6, Go and say this to the people, Hear and hear again, but do not understand. See and see again, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people gross. Make its ears dull. Shut its eyes so that it will not see with its eyes, nor hear with its ears, understand with its heart, and will not be converted and healed. Well, this is a condemnation. This Mm -hmm. is a sentence, a divine judgment. And again, Isaiah 29. For on you the Lord has poured out a spirit of lethargy. He has closed your eyes. He has veiled your heads. For you, every vision has become like the words of a book you can't open. You give it to someone else and say, please read that. He he replies, I cannot because the book is sealed. Or else you give the book to someone who cannot read and say, read. And he says, I can't. I'm unable to read. So those are judgments. Those are, and they're found here in John 12. Indeed, they were unable to believe because as Isaiah says, he blinded their eyes. He hardened their hearts for fear that they might see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn to me for healing. This meant those people who had definitively, totally rejected the Lord. God's mercy knocks on the doors of those hearts that are closed. If you hear me knocking, open up and I'll come in and have supper with you. Again in Romans 11, it was not Israel as a whole that found what it was seeking, but only a chosen few. We've called them the little remnant. After Israel was in captivity and the little remnant came back, a few believers, there weren't many. That's why we find Haggai and other of the, those, those prophets at that time begging for help in the restoration of the new covenant, the, the new temple. So <clears throat> despite the lack of hook words, if we can say that, we can say that to make the relationship of 2 Corinthians 3 
with its rich scriptural background more obvious, Isaiah 6 and 29 are also a part of a complex substructure in Paul's argument. They can be associated with other texts, for example, we find in Revelations 5. There was a scroll, and this scroll was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a powerful angel who cried with a loud voice, Is there anyone worthy to open the scroll and break the seals of this book? Then I saw a lamb that seems to have been immolated. They sang a new hymn, You are worthy to take this scroll and break the seals of it because you were immolated. And with your blood, you bought men for God of every race, language, and people and made them a line of kings and priests to serve. The New Catechism in Numbers one twelve offers three criteria for our use of Scripture in the spiritual life. First of all, Number 112, be especially attentive to the content and unity of the Holy Scripture. James did not disagree with Paul. It was He clarified, if we want to say, or reapplied some of the statements of Paul and the context in which they were said. So the catechism goes on. Different as the books which comprise it may be, Scripture is a totality, a unity, because of the unity of God's plan. Which, of which Christ Jesus is the center and the heart. And this heart was opened since, his, since the Passover. And that, the text goes on. The heart of Jesus can refer to sacred scripture, which make, makes known his heart. This was closed before the Passion because the scriptures were obscure. But scripture has been opened by the Passion. When the Roman soldier opened the side of Christ, Blood and water, blood and water, metaphorically, baptism and Eucharist, and the Word of God. You come, to those of who are thirsty, come and you will drink from the streams of salvation, as we read in John seven. So the main first point is the unity of the whole of Scripture. So I'm <clears throat> a little worried about asking a, a dumb question here, but no I'm going to ask it. I'm going to ask it anyway. So we've talked about the way in which God removes our stony heart and gives us a natural mm-hmm. heart. But then what you're saying is that he has crusted it over, mm-hmm. that made us hard of hearing and blind. And is that idea that he's done that so that we will ask for his help? Well, that's not far from the from the kingdom, but I, what I really think it means, these are sentences of what had already happened. The Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Mm -hmm. And in that earlier revelation, they thought God did everything. But it's given to us so that we do not let that happen to us. That that our hearts not be hardened, or that we be closed, or that we be sluggish, or are your mind so closed, are your head neck so stiff, as the Lord remonstrating in Mark's Gospel. So, that those are more or less the sentences, the hardening of hearts or the closing of minds or the lack of listening or the lack of vision are choices, definitive choices, people in history made. Well, we, let's learn from the past. I think it was Lincoln said, if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you're condemned to repeat them. Well, it's one of those that reminds me of mm-hmm. one of the things that I say in my in my class where I'm trying to teach mm-hmm. um, empathy and understanding Mm -hmm. in the context of a a business settings but 
I say to my students, the hardest thing in life to give up is a bad idea, <laughs> especially when it's mm. your own. Mm. And there's a, there is a tendency to, mm. to defend what we mm. prefer instead of to be open to a different way. Mm. And everybody's guilty of that in mm. many different shapes and forms, but that's part of what you're maybe saying mm-hmm. was happening to the Israelites. They let mm. their hearts be hardened over. They didn't want to be converted. They mm. they kept saying to Jesus, "Well, give us a sign. Give us another sign. Give us another sign." Mm-hmm. And 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 they didn't want to give up the idea that they had. And the Lord said, "This is a wicked generation yeah. that wants signs. The only sign is Jonah in the in the belly of the whale." So <clears throat> these are <laughs> challenging ideas. They are. And they are. but the, the first point that the uh, New Catechism is trying to be in the interpretation of Scripture. There's one divine message, uh, the, the totality, the content, and the unity of the whole. It's called integrity, mm-hmm. the integral understanding of Scripture. Secondly, these are words meant, as Paul has made very clear to us, not to one people. These words are written on the human heart by the Holy Spirit. It's the whole church. There's no one excluded from this. We're all invited to come follow the Lord, take up our cross every day and come follow me no matter what we're doing. And the third one is, be attentive to the analogy of faith. Analogy of faith means that coherence of truths among themselves within the whole plan of revelation, like the bread from heaven. That might have been stuff that came about on a cool morning after the hot desert night. Uh, But whatever it was, it was called manna from heaven. And this then leads into the priesthood, uh, into the Eucharist, the manna from heaven. The word is, what is it? What is the Eucharist? We think it's bread from heaven, not the bread your fathers ate in the desert, but that bread my father gives you through me. So Paul could well make use of this practice, his understanding between Isaiah Uh, 6 and 9 and 2 Corinthians 3. This explains the unbelief of his co-nationals to some extent. Their eyes were shut, their ears were closed, and they were not open, would not receive the word of God. There is a Greek verb that is often presented, meaning to harden, and it's used repeatedly in the New Testament. Matthew 6, Matthew 8, John 12, Romans 11, 2 Corinthians 3. It means a situation of unbelief, misunderstanding, or stubbornness Mm -hmm. and rejection. So Paul would have done, you might say, uh, God's revelation to Jesus Christ quotes this Isaiah 6, 9, in John 12, 39 to 41. So the exact wording of of the prophetic text of Isaiah has led to various theories. The New Testament authors might be using it identically translated the Hebrew text or some earlier Septuagint translation now lost or some other earlier usage of Isaiah 6. As you pointed out, it's very hard to understand this. How can God harden our hearts? But it seems that Paul has drawn his idea that the sons of Israel are still blinded by the veil of Moses and still ignorant of the full message. So there is a grossness, a sluggishness, a lethargy, a closure, a chosen not understanding, and just what exactly this is, 
may be hard to say because we may not have the text, the exact wording that Paul is using here. So it is a challenge. In what way does God harden the human heart? Well, this might lead us then to this great text of Isaiah 6, which we think happens in the Transfiguration. This is a famous vision of the fiery vision of the, of the, the, the prophet who realized he had impure lips. He was unworthy of his glory to be a prophet. So it came to pass in that year in which the king died that I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne and the house was full of his glory. So he went in one end of this scene going on, this transfiguration. Seraphs stood all around him, each one had six wings and so on. And they cried out to each other and said, Holy, holy, holy Lord. He said, God, Lord of hosts, the whole world is full of his glory. And the very foundation shook at the voice they, that was being uttered. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am pricked to the heart for being a man and having unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people having unclean lips. And have seen with mine eyes the king the Lord of hosts. And there was sent to me one of the seraphs, and he had in his hand a coal taken by tongs from the fire. And he touched my mouth, and he said, This has touched your lips, and will take away your iniquities, and purge you your sins. And I heard the voice saying, Whom can I send, and who will go to this people? And I said, Behold, I am here, send me. So, <clears throat> We need to be very careful of having a lack of perception, closing of our eyes, lack of understanding in the heart, the non-willingness to be converted. So all of these things, this blossoming of God's grace and God's message is in us in every divine word. With Moses, we deep, we take a dive into the, uh, into the revealed passage here and need to be more immersed in it to get its many, many meanings understood. Well, it's what I think what's so telling though and wonderful about Isaiah is that he realized his impurity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, or when Peter says, Lord, I am a sinful mm-hmm. man, depart from me. Mm-hmm. There's an awareness mm-hmm. of the impurity, the inadequacy, the unworthiness mm-hmm. at such a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the beginning of mm-hmm. of an opportunity to right. convert. And I think apostolic boldness would never allow us to use our unworthiness to keep us from doing what we still could do because right. only God knows what he would do if people didn't say, no, well, I'm a sinner, I'm no good, I made mistakes, I made, I failed. Haven't we all? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all redeemed sinners. So boldness, that apostolic boldness, we dare to say, our Father, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. We dare to say that, and that's apostolic boldness, boldness, and we need to carry this on throughout our, li- our well, lives. And that's why, again, Peter is mm-hmm. one of the best role models of this. Having failed so, so thoroughly, mm-hmm. he becomes a bold spokesman that's and right. preacher unto death. Well, that is a great mystery. Where did these cowardly apostles get their strength, if not the resurrection? And this is that living stone, the cornerstone, and we're all dead stones trying to sit close to it to participate in the energy from the resurrection. So 
Paul trying to explain to us the hardening of Israel. And it's a very hard sell. It's very hard to know exactly what happened. The hardening of heart then is attributed to God himself, the closing of their minds, you'll ask and you won't receive, and all of these things that seem to contradict what went before. But it also keeps us, keeps us keeps before our minds the justice of God. He's not going to force himself. He's appealing to us to let him in. If you hear me knocking, let me in. And seeing of Israel results then from Moses' placing the veil over his own eyes. And this blinded condition is then mentioned in John 12 and the early Christian usage of Isaiah 6. It's a failure to accept Jesus Christ. So this shifts the main responsibility for lack of faith away from Moses to the people himself who rejected the ongoing revelation. Isaiah 29 and its context, unbelief and a lack of faith. It's not simply unbelief or ignorance. It's a specific sort of choosing, veiling, blindness, a choice not to understand God's word in Scripture. God is not unjust, and he doesn't ask any of us to do the impossible. So the old prayer of Deuteronomy 29 could very well be ours today. Isaiah, Deuteronomy 29, 1-4. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them on Horeb. And Moses called all the sons of Israel and said, You have all seen the things the Lord did in Egypt for you, <clears throat> the great temptations which your eyes have seen, the sighs and those great wonders, yet the Lord has not yet given you a heart to know, eyes to see, and ears to hear, until today. So, <laughs> the transfiguration, Paul's whole effort here is so that we might see, hear, and understand today. This is a message to the heart, heart-to-heart conversation between God, between God and, and Paul, which he handed, in to, uh, handed over to us. So the old Hebrew of Isaiah, <coughs> of Isaiah is, Israel is asleep. Their eyes are closed, a covering lies on the leaders among the sons of Israel. So this is what Isaiah 29 said. The Lord has made you to drink a spirit of deep sleep, and he closes their eyes and their eyes of their prophets and their rulers who see secret things. And all these things shall be to you as the words of the sealed book when they say, give it to a learned man, and so on. I behold, I will proceed to remove this people. I will remove them. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, hide the understanding of the prudent. Woe to them that deepen their counsel, not by the Lord. Worldly wisdom being more important than divine. I think an example of this would be the Da Vinci Code, which had more of an impact on many, many people over the Bible. And it was all a novel. Right. It was something invented, or the last temptation of Jesus was written by the same person who wrote Zorba the Greek. These are great theater, wonderful theater. So the phenomenon of disbelief and ignorance remain, remain a problem. In other words, we cannot judge them untowardly, which sometimes the record of 
the treatment of Jews through history has not been a good one, and this is part of the reason. We, we blame them, we look down on them, look at you sinners, and we're wallowing the mud in other ways, and so on. So the phenomena of disbelief and ignorance, it would be the failure to really read the words of the book, and Paul has shown us how deep it is. The metaphor of Israel's lack of faith, their inability to read, has already been foretold by Isaiah. This ignorance has been represented by Paul under the influence of Exodus 34. This is contemporaneity at its best. <clears throat> this, uh, the contemporary experience of the lack of his people's faith is what troubled Paul greatly. His greatest cross, his wound, would be the Judaizers, those who would refuse to accept Jesus Christ. So using the metaphor of the veiling of Israel's faith sends right to this day all those who are simply will not read or will not accept or will not be converted by the message of mercy of Jesus Christ. So to summarize all of this, <laughs> we might say to Paul, Moses was a book. He was the Torah. So this type of transference was common in commonplace in earlier times. So Moses' veil is drawn into the contemporary scene of Paul's life and some times into our own lives as we, as we speak. So the location of the veil and this broad scriptural background can help us. The veil must be removed. God's word provides the reason, the explanation for all of this. Scripture is always the best source to read to understand other scriptures. So the covering and the veiling imply hardness of heart, the choice not to believe, the choice not to be educated or not to know or understand the Word of God and not even to read the Word of God. To neglect the Scriptures is to neglect Jesus Christ. So the key word here, of course, is the heart. All of this is written on the heart. We pray that our hearts may never be closed or sealed or give in to lack of understanding, or get tired of trying to do it. The heart of Israel and its faculty of knowing was stilted or immobilized through the metaphor of the veil. There's a clear contrast then here between Moses of the old time and Paul of the new. And maybe the Israelites that rejected the word of God and the church and the people of the, today's church who turn away from it and give in more to a life of self-indulgence than they would to a life of faith and service of others. So this great epistle written on the heart, maybe for you and for me, is this light at the end of the tunnel of our present life, which is the prelude to the beatific vision. The perpetual light will shine upon us, and that light will make known to us this great message of God's mercy written on our hearts. And despite all of this, there still be much, might be much more to say. But I thought I would end this long reflection and the next few reflections on two points in which Moses is some relation and certainly Paul continued. Yeah, we'll conclude this reflection on two points we really want to emphasize. One is the mystery of prayer as a seeking the Lord, trying to understand his word. And secondly, Peter's idea of crucified joy. The transfiguration, this great and joyous vision, 
was made known to the people of God on the way to Calvary. We have this in Peter, 1 Peter 4. If you can have some share in the sufferings of Christ, be glad, because you will enjoy a much greater gladness when that glory is revealed. Or again, 1 Peter 1.5. Through your faith, God's power will guide you until the salvation which has been prepared for you, even though for a short time you will have to bear being plagued by all kinds of trials. So these two points this crucified joy and the quest for the Lord and all of this. What is it all about, Alfie? This is what we will use as a kind of a conclusion to these many, many lectures. Yeah, so we have uh, three Duke and Ultim lectures left, mm-hmm. and that's what you will you will take up for right. us. And mm-hmm. um, prayer, Peter's quest, mm-hmm. and crucified joy mm-hmm. would be a wonderful way mm-hmm. to do this. So, mm-hmm. as always, Father, you give us so much to think about. Mm-hmm. My goodness, it's a privilege always for me to sit here and listen to you live. And uh, I find myself thinking, I'm so glad these are recorded because I think I would need to listen to them again. Mm-hmm. There is so much to think about as you help us along our spiritual journey of faith. So, well, thank you. Thank you very kindly. Well, these studies and the great teachers I had, as I've said so many times, were a blessing in my 61 years in the priesthood. Yes. I think it's one of the one of the helps that helped me to become a priest, to stay a priest, and to want to die and go to God as a priest. As a priest. So, well, <laughs> shall we thank God for this great blessing and finish with a prayer? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now yeah. and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, pray for us. St. Peter, please pray for us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you once again, Father, for teaching. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.